If you'd like to read along, I'm going to be reading in Luke 19. We'll read verses 41 through 44. 44 being the primary text. Luke chapter 19, reading at verse 41. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known even thou at least in this thy day the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. And the last phrase there will be our subject, our title, The Time of Thy Visitation. If you have headings up at the top of your pages on your Bible, this one may very well have the triumphal, triumphant, triumphal entry. And this, of course, is speaking of the Lord Jesus in verse 41 when it says he was come near to the city and wept over it. This is approximately a week before he would be crucified in it. And the things previous to the reading here speak of the triumphalness of this entry into the city, uh, like I say, about a week prior to his crucifixion. Now there's a real irony here, if you stop and realize it, Again, it is called a triumphal entry, but not everybody was triumphal in that regard as Jesus entered. And of course, he is entering, as the prophet said, setting upon uh, the colt of an ass that no man had ever sat there on. In Luke's version here, garments are spread down on the ground by his disciples. Other gospel accounts tell us of palm leaves and other things. It was, in a sense, what today would be a parade, a modern parade or celebration of someone of great status or importance in that regard. But as we said, it's very ironic that not everybody was happy about this. His disciples are rejoicing as he comes into the city. And that is because they are anticipating that he is about to sometime very soon set up his kingdom on the earth, which they have expected for centuries by the prophets. And the Pharisees, on the other hand, who have hated him and held him in contempt are despising all of this celebration of him. And even in verse 39 tell him to rebuke his disciples. They don't want him seeing this fanfare and glamour and all of this honor and prestige heaped upon him. And he replies very simply in verse 40, why if they shut up, the stones would cry out. Quite a statement, isn't it? Then we see in verse 40 when the irony here, again, some happy, some unhappy, And Jesus, as he comes to the city, weeps over it. So you got different ones with different sentiments about him coming to the city. 
Now the irony gets even more dramatic and thick, thicker when you think about that about a week from now after Jesus is crucified being condemned within Jerusalem crucified outside of Jerusalem the ones who are now happy are going to be sad and weeping because Jesus is dead and those who are now unhappy are going to be rejoicing because he's dead so again, it's not only irony present here, but how the tables will turn in about a week. The words of Jesus here in reference to the time of visitation here presents before us when we consider it one of the greatest tragedies perhaps that there ever has been. And that is that as Jesus weeps over Jerusalem here and in his words speaks unto Jerusalem, he is of course speaking unto the Jewish people. And he's speaking of the tragedy of what's about to happen. That this was their time. Their promised time of visitation. This is what every Jew from since there was one beginning with Abraham had been looking forward to and it ended up in a huge tragedy. That is the prophecy of their coming Messiah. That time when they would be visited with that prophet who would supersede all prophets. And yet to sum it up, they missed it. And that's why Jesus is weeping here because that is a tragedy of untold proportions. You think about that. I mean, in the history of humanity, there have always been prophecies, legends, folklores, and things among different ethnic groups and generations of people great ones who are to come some of them came some of them never showed up some came and claimed to be the one that was supposed to come and maybe it was and maybe it wasn't we got those stories throughout all of human history but there's not one like this that was prophesied so far back so long ago and was expected by so many for so long a time and then when he came they missed it and there's no excuse and then also they're suffering these people we know as Jews or the seed of Abraham even to the present time because of what we're talking about here there's nothing like it in human history but when we talk about the human history, of course, there's no history like that of the Jews. So it is unique. It is special. And that's why we can say it is very possibly, and I would say so, the greatest tragedy that's ever happened to any group of people is the Jewish people, Israel, Jerusalem, rejecting her king, rejecting her Messiah. The time of visitation. Let me pause here and say this just for your information too. That is why Israel has suffered and why they are suffering today. 
But I read something very interesting this week. I'm not sure. I probably heard it before and never read this particular. But, you know, they say that's not why they've suffered. That's not why Jerusalem was destroyed. That's not why they've suffered and had holocaust and been persecuted now for nearly 2,000 years was because of the rejection of the man called Jesus. But it was for other religious reasons that they were guilty of. So what are they doing? They're living in denial. What did they do here? They lived in denial. They willfully rejected He who was the truth. And today they still reject that they made a mistake, messed up, and crucified their Messiah. However, the Bible says there's coming a day when they'll eat crow. And they'll acknowledge it. And they'll weep and mourn because of this great tragedy and their subsequent suffering and dilemma. The time of thy visitation, it's the same as in verse 42 when Jesus said, at least in this thy day. So thy day there in verse 42 is the same as the time of thy visitation in verse 44. And there's quite a few references in the Old Testament concerning thy visitation. It was prophesied, of course, there would be a visitation. In fact, let's begin right there. The prophecies of the Old Testament prophesied of the time when God would visit His people in and through the branch the chosen, mine elect, that prophet, the Messiah. In fact, that first prophecy is where? Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman. There's the first prophecy where God is speaking to man, fallen man, about a time of visitation. And what did he say? The seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise his heel. So there's the first prophecy. And then the Old Testament is continued to be filled up progressively with other prophecies concerning a time that would come, a person that would come, a kingdom that would come from the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar and all of that. And so there were centuries of waiting, anticipating, and of high expectations of this great event, the time of God's visitation to His chosen nation and His chosen people with the one that would be born of a virgin, the one that would be called Mighty Counselor and all of those wonderful things in Isaiah. And then when it happened, it's like it didn't happen. When the time came, they denied it. When he showed up with all the evidence and the prophecies being fulfilled, one right after another, all of them being fulfilled that were uh, to be done while he was here the first time, they rejected it all. There's no excuse. 
In fact, consider again, they had the timeline of Daniel's 70 weeks concerning Messiah. And you think, well, maybe it was just too difficult. No, it's not too difficult to those that knew. Proof of that is the wise men. They knew exactly when, where <laughs> he was to be born. I mean, they had calendars that worked if you wanted to pay attention to it. That's the proof. And then think about the other things that are impossible to miss. What, what did the Bible say would happen before Messiah would come? It said there would be a forerunner. Almost what? One going before. That's like somebody going ahead and announcing, the king's coming. Okay, you know, just like in civil celebrations, announcing. Well, lo and behold, after 400 years of silence in the time of the Maccabees, we have what? In those days came John the Baptist preaching. Nobody had ever showed up like John. I mean, there had been prophets of old, but there weren't any like John. And John had the power and the authority to baptize. Nobody had ever done that before. But before we actually get into John announcing such things, look with me back in Luke chapter 1 concerning John's father's prophecy who again was of the tribe of Levi and ministered these things and you, we won't have time to go into the story here but when John is born and his father Zachariah still can't speak and they find, want to know what they're going to name him they're going to name him after the father you know or some ancestor uh, he says no his name's going to be John according to the foretold prophecy or revelation of the angel, in verse 67 we pick up the reading and it says, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. What's he saying? Now, John was just a little bit ahead of Christ, remember? I mean, Rebecca and Mary ended up both being pregnant at the same time, it appears. John was just about six months ahead of time of Jesus, approximately, something like that. When we put Bible accounts together. So how could he say this now? Christ hadn't been born yet. Well, he's simply saying, here's the start of it. This is exactly what was prophesied, and he literally... You know, we can read between the lines here. He's not saying it, but we can say it. He's literally saying, my son is the forerunner. That's what the angel had revealed. He hath visited his people and redeemed them. This is where it's beginning with John. And hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies from the end of all that hate us. That was their anticipation. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham. Look how he's drawing on all this Old Testament common knowledge that the Jews would have known about. And again, the ball has just started rolling, not with the birth of Jesus yet, but with the birth of John, the forerunner. So he's acting like it's already happened with Jesus because, again, John, the forerunner, is initiating all of this. And he's just been born. Look at verse 74, that he would grant to us 
that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare His way. Speaking of His Son, to give knowledge of salvation unto His people by the remission of their sin through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring on high from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of the peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts until the day of his showing unto Israel. Now again, the day sprang on high. Jesus, the Messiah, would come on the heels, if you'll allow me to say it, of John the Baptist's ministry exactly as the Old Testament's prophesied. I mean, you couldn't miss it. If you had any intelligence whatsoever of the Old Testament prophecies, I mean, here it is falling into place right before your very eyes. And again, I say the Jews of that time who were contemporary in that generation had no excuse. They had the oracles of God. The wise men didn't miss it. Other people didn't miss it. Simon the man didn't miss it when he saw the little baby. Anna the prophetess didn't miss it when they saw the little infant Jesus, right? Okay. If you wanted to know, you could know and know most assuredly as these prophecies were being fulfilled right before their very eyes and still the nation as a whole missed it. Wow. Well, then we have John's testimony. What about the Gospel of John chapter 1? Let's skip through it. I can't read all this for the time's sake, but in verse 15 of John 1, it said, John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This is he of whom I spake. He that come after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. <laughs> now John may have been older in the flesh, but that's as far as it went, because Jesus was the eternal Son of God that condescended in his incarnation, right? And he go, goes on in speaking of different things here. Uh, um, he can, when he was asked in verse 19, verse 20, he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And now they're asking, well, who are you? Are you Elias? He said, I'm not. Are you that prophet? And that's the prophet of Deuteronomy 18 where Moses said, the one day there will be that prophet and him you shall hear above all others. He answered, no. Well, who are you? When you give answer yourself, here it is, verse 23. How could you miss it? He's quoting Isaiah. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as saith the prophet Isaiah. And they just would not admit to what he was saying. The verses follow after here. He says, here's one. I'm baptizing you with water, but there's one coming on after me that will baptize you on with fire. I don't think that may be here, but it... It is, it is, down in verse 33. Uh, the same as he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. Back in verse 29, when he looks upon Jesus, he identified him as the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. I mean, this is all happening in and around Jerusalem and Judea. And again, any Jew that knew the Old Testament, which is all they had, of course, could see that these things are falling into place. This is what's the time of visitation is here. And when Christ came, what did he begin to preach? The things concerning the kingdom. Right? 
things concerning the kingdom. Back in uh, Luke's Gospel again, chapter 7 and verse 16, here's when Jesus uh, raised a young man that was uh, the only son of a mother and in the casket, you might say, on his way to the grave. And it says here, after Jesus raised him from the dead, verse 16, there came a fear on all and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen among us and that God hath visited his people. So again, this is early in Jesus' ministry, but these things are falling into place right before their very eyes. So when we're talking about the time of visitation, we could say, well, it was a window of the existence of Christ, the Messiah, His incarnation upon the earth, which would have been a period maximum 33, 33 and a half years, we're told, right? But in reality was probably that three, three and a half year period of his ministry. I mean, you know, the real substance and essence of it because there's where all the evidence was and there's where the manifestation of that evidence and fulfillments of many of those prophecies were. Of course, there was a fulfillment of the prophecy of his birth and things like that. But as he began his ministry in those short years, here is where that window really was where he appeared unto his people as their Messiah and they rejected him and crucified them. His person, his work, his words, his ministry, and his miracles all prove who he was beyond any shadow of a doubt. These are the things that he speaks about here in our text in verse 44 when he says, The things which belong unto thy peace. He was the Prince of Peace. He was bringing peace. He preached a gospel of peace, did he not? Everything about him and the truth of him was all about peace in that regard. And this is what they had anticipated, and yet they missed it. You know, this is like, I won't give a specific illustration. It doesn't come to mind right offhand, but some things in reproduction and what have you have such a narrow, narrow window, you know? I mean, the fertility of some plants, animals, things like this. I mean, it's just... Just You just see God's handiwork when you learn such things. I, I will mention one. I, I Just one comes to mind that always I stood marvelous. There's some kind of cactus that grows out in the desert down there in uh, Arizona. You guys may know about it or something. I don't know if it's what kind or particular it is. But that cactus, when it blooms, can only, uh, you know, be pollinated I mean in a very short, I think it's less than 24 hours, maybe 24 hour max. And there's one bird that does it. And this bird flies all the way from either Mexico or South America, all the way up here, and makes it in that window of opportunity to pollinate those cactus to reproduce. I mean, you, you read and hear things, and there's thousands of them in sea life and birds and everything else, the way, way things do. And God has done that. Well, my point is, 
that little window. That's the only window that cactus has. That one time, in that one year, you know, for that flower to get pollinated by that bird that's thousands of miles away but gets there within a 24-hour period. Well, this was the Jewish time. This was the time. I mean, this is when everything, it was ripe, it was fertile, it was that blessed time. This was their window of opportunity that they had looked at for ages and generations. And while the bird made it to the cactus, they didn't make it. They missed out. How sad. And it was not because of a lack of evidence. It was not because of a lack of testimony. All of that was there. And they got reminded of that. But it is, as Jesus said, it was ignorance and blindness. Willful ignorance, because there was plenty of knowledge and evidence, so no excuse there, and spiritual blindness. He was not who they wanted him to be, so they would have no part of him. He would not change to be what they expected him to be. So they rejected him and they crucified him. Verse 20, 42 again, this is what he is lamenting when Jesus wept. If you had known, and you should have known, and the knowledge was, as the saying goes, as plain as a nose on your face. And I've said before, and I'll say it here, what else could God have done? I mean, if he'd have flew a 747 through there at this time with a behind it that was indestructible, claiming this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, hear ye him, it wouldn't have made no difference. They'd done made up their mind. Because, you know, God did do that, didn't he? On about three occasions. And one of them seemed to be maybe in a more open public occasion, this is my beloved son, hear him. But they chose not to. So verse 42, did not know and are hid from thine eyes. How sad. How very, very sad. So rather than rejoicing as the disciples were when he came in, they rejected him, they conspired they got a plot with Judas Iscariot and they literally murdered the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, they thought they were off the hook, right? But when you begin reading at Pentecost in the book of Acts, Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, those early chapters there, you know what you got? You got this guy called Peter who's standing up and literally pointing a finger at those Jews and saying, you murdered him. You killed him. You killed the just one, the promised one. I mean, no, it, it didn't get to slide by. And the prophets made clear that that burden of guilt was laid upon the Jewish leaders. And they were, they are, and were murderers. Think of that. Don't ever forget that. It was not just the Romans that were the murderers. They were the executioners. The premeditated murder and guilt and blood was upon the Jews as they said. What did they say? Let his blood be on us and our children. Well, boy, you better be careful what you wish for. 
It's still on them today. Now, I got to mention some things real quick here, but I do want to mention them. Jesus forewarned every bit of this in the parables. I mean, it's like saying, you got all this information of the time of your visitation where you can't miss it, and now I'm going to warn you, you are going to miss it. So don't miss it. <laughs> I mean, and, and what am I talking about? Well, let, let me tell you about some parables that Jesus told that said of this. What about the parable of the ten virgins? Be ready. Be ready. I mean, that bridegroom is coming, but you don't know when, but when he is coming, and again, this is pertinent to the Jews, and it has other, other ramifications also. But when he's coming, don't be ready. Well, they weren't ready. Were they? And by the time they got ready, it was too late. Right? But I mean, that was a warning. A warning. That's in Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Right on the heels of that in verses 14 through 30 is the parable of the talents. And you know the story. He gave one one. He gave one two. He gave one five. You know? And again, then he comes and they show what they've done with it. The one didn't do nothing with it. Again, every one of these is an opportunity. Okay? The virgins, opportunity. God gave these talents, opportunity. And again, I'm not saying all of these parables speak specifically of what Jesus is speaking about here. They have other lessons in them too. But they are have one thing in common. They're all opportunities. And they were lessons to the Jews. Don't miss your opportunity. Some of them were more specific than others. But even though the guy got one talent, he got something from God. The Jews had the oracles. They had the prophecies. They of all people should have been able to recognize their Messiah. Then in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14, we have the marriage supper. Remember? For the son, the man made a marriage supper for his son. And verse 5 says, those whom he invited and all made light of it. What did the Jewish people, what did the Pharisees and Sadducees do with Jesus? His words, His teaching, His ministry, His miracles, all that. They made light of it. They even said it's of the devil. Willful blindness. Willful ignorance in that regard. In Luke 14, 16-24, we have the parable of the Great Supper. And everybody's making an excuse. i got more important things to do. Remember that? And probably the one most pertinent, again, what do these have in common? Opportunity. Missed opportunity. Luke 29 through 19 is the parable of the vineyard. Remember the man? Established a vineyard, went away in a far country, going to come again someday and what have you. Again, God did all those things, those prophets, and sent them to Israel. In the parable, he sent three different servants to those he left in charge. They run off the first one, beat one, and kill the other. You know, which this is specifically to Israel. Finally, he said, I'll send my own son. They'll reverence him. What did they do? Killed him. 
And I mean, that was to the point. And Jesus made a point that they got that one, and they did, and they got mad, and they got upset, and they wanted to kill him over it because he summed it up by telling them, have you not read the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner? And they said, God forbid that this be true of us, you know, that we do such a thing. Well, they did. And again, I say to you, Jesus was telling them in those parables, making a reference to them, that the time of your visitation, the time of your opportunity is here. Don't make this mistake. And they did anyway. Let's make a practical application. The same thing that's true of them is true of all sinners. A time of visitation. First of all, isn't it wonderful that God has provided a time of visitation? Genesis 3.15, again, not just to Israel, but to sinners. Jews and Gentiles. That is an act of God's grace that God would visit man. What is man that thou art mindful of? Why would God even do anything for fallen man? He owed him nothing. He's not obligated to. But God in his mercy and willing to display his mercy and grace said the seed of the woman will be the salvation of sinners. So the very idea that there's a time of visitation of any kind to any sinner anywhere any place, any time is again an act of God's grace. It's all of grace. And remember, we as Gentiles should be especially happy about this because there was a time when Acts 14.12 says the Lord just let the Gentiles go their own way. He didn't visit them. How many centuries went by and generations of people were born and died and they never heard anything from the mouth of God by a prophet of God. We live in a blessed time. We live this side of the cross. When the door has been opened to Gentile peoples worldwide universally, we live after go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, aren't you? We ought to be happy about that. That hadn't always been that way. You know it. As Gentiles, that's something to rejoice in. Thank God you didn't live back in the time of Nebuchadnezzar or somebody else or the Philistines and just perished with those pagan gods. Because that's exactly what happened. But we live in a day of mercy. But getting more personal, what is the time of visitation? I touched on this not too long ago. Let me put it to you in one word. Today. Today. The Bible doesn't say nothing about tomorrow. Remember me preaching that? Jesus Christ same yesterday, today, and forever. I mean, I mean, you know, tomorrow is almost like it doesn't exist, except in the sense of anticipating something that never happens the way tomorrow is. Your life, my life, is depicted in the Bible as being only a vapor. And a vapor, if you've ever, I, that's such an adequate illustration to me. I mean, I can remember as far back as I can remember as a child. Of course, didn't know what a hot water heater was. All the hot water we had got heated on the stove of some kind. And we had what we called a tea kettle, but it it wasn't to make tea in. We never made tea out of it. It is a big thing. But that's what we heated all the water in. 
He's going to take a bath or anything you're going to use hot water in it, you heated it in that. We called it a tea kettle. It had a big handle, big spout, big container. And like I say, as far back as I can remember as a child, I can remember when that water get hot, seeing that steam come out of that spout. But you know what? It didn't go to the ceiling and then disappear. It didn't get hardly anywhere away from the end of that spout. And it just vaporized, just like clouds sometimes when you look at it. And that's what the Bible says human life is like. Your life, my life, even Methuselah's life in the big scope of things was still just a vapor. It may have been the longest vapor, but it's still a vapor. And as you know today, people don't live that long. A vapor. And that vapor, just like the steam off that tea kettle, may go out today. So if anybody hears me, you who are here today, anybody hears me any other way via these videos or audios or whatever, when you hear it, today might be the last day of the time of your visitation. Because one day, there's coming the end. Either you're going to leave, or Christ is going to come, the end is going to come, and then what? Well, don't make the mistake the Jews did. Listen to me and what, what, the, what was their problem? It wasn't a lack of evidence. It wasn't a lack of truth. It was willful ignorance, spiritual blindness. And they rejected what was obvious. What does the Bible say? What does the gospel say? Today, today hear His voice. And what is the voice that we are to hear? Repent and believe the gospel. This is my beloved Son. Hear ye Him. That's your message today. That this may be, I don't know, God only knows, the last opportunity to obey that to somebody that's heard me say that today. I don't know. But we have no promise. We know that. The result of their disobedience, willful ignorance, spiritual blindness, and rejection of their Messiah was what? Verse 43 and 44 tells about it. Perish and destruction. Summing it up. Perishing and destruction. And the parables that I made an application of opportunity to to Israel are likewise to every sinner. God has given you a time, an opportunity. If you come within earshot of the gospel or you read the gospel in the pages of God's book or a track or something, if it's the truth of the gospel, you have opportunity. What will you do with that opportunity? Because the final thing I've got to say to you is, as with the Jews, there was an opportunity to acknowledge, bow before, and repent. And they did not. What did Jesus say? The day shall come, another visitation, and one of judgment. And the same thing is true today of all that are lost and unbelieving who have heard the gospel and rejected it, who disobey it, who not, do not bow before God's Son and repent of their sins and of their wretchedness, 
It's coming a day of visitation. It could be death visiting you today, but one day it will certainly be Jesus again visiting to judge the quick and the dead. And then what? I'll tell you what. I can answer that question. It will be as in the parables. Bind them hand and foot and cast them into outer darkness. You missed your opportunity. All day long have I stretched out my hands to a gainsaying, disobedient people. You would not come to me that you might have life. An opportunity. A missed opportunity. A time of visitation where God extended mercy and grace through His Son, Jesus Christ. And every sinner that says no will end up perishing and be cast into a lake of fire. Listen to this scripture. This is the last thing I have to say. John 12, 36. While you have light, believe in the light that you might be the children of light. If you're lost today, that's my admonition to you. May God give you grace to do just that.